the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Welcome to the show. My name is indeed Alna Schutz and this is the one hour in the week where we get a little bit nerdy. It's the science inside and we look deeper at the science inside some of the major news stories, things that are in the headlines that we're all speaking about. And you've probably heard of Ebola, cholera and the Zika virus. But the truth is, of course, that there are a lot more than just those few diseases that cause regular and devastating effects in certain parts and often large parts of the world. One such illness you may not have heard of, but it is in the headlines at the moment, is called Lassa fever. It's a it's a virus that was named uh, in 1969 after the Nigerian town of Lhasa and is transmitted via rodents. Countries in West Africa like Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone face this outbreak yearly. And the current outbreak in Nigeria has already killed 119 people this year alone. And the number of people who have contracted the disease is around 376. So that is more than all the cases reported last year. In total, that raises a lot of eyebrows, even with the disease that happens every year. And we have to put this in context. This is an illness with no vaccines that is frustratingly difficult to diagnose. In a country with a fragile health care system, that is quite frankly regularly overwhelmed and the only treatment currently used is a drug that is more or less effective at least to the, for the most part in the first few days of the illness. So this isn't very easy of a situation and then throw into that part that some healthcare workers are also falling ill when they're not protected and don't know what they're dealing with. The race is now on, not only to stem the current outbreak and to, and to understand why it is so severe, but to create vaccines and drugs for the future. Later in the show, we will find out more about this illness and just how it works and just putting it into the bigger context of diseases in um, in Africa and in the world. So you'll want to listen to that story. Then later, it's of course Unscience, where today we find out whether your personality could be the reason you're addicted to Instagram. Then much later in the show, we will look at the scientists behind the science as we do every single week with Dr. Bianca for London, who has worked on the discovery of a new anti-malarial compound. We end off the show as we do every week this month of March with the fantasy league of animals and scientists it's called March Mammal Madness and if you don't think that science is fun you definitely want to stick around for that uh, and hopefully we will prove you wrong remember you can find us on social media the science inside on Facebook WhatsApp line 084-079-4912 or tweet us at VAFM hashtag science inside tell us what is happening in the world of science that has just gotten you hooked that you would love that you're excited about tell us about that tell us about what do you think of of the show and what we're talking about tonight specifically loss of fever we'd love to hear from you so listening next up it is the news this week's science headline 
As every single week we kick off the show by just taking a quick peek at what's happening in the broader world of science internationally with our uh, producer Bridget LePere. Hi Bridget. Good evening Elna, how are you? I'm excellent. I love talking about science, especially the big things and the exciting things that are happening around the world even though in today's story for you we're coming very close to home. Very close, and I love it. Well, today we are talking about a, a lost city in the south of Johannesburg, which was uncovered using laser technology. How awesome is that? Okay. It sounds like like you maybe watched a great cartoon <laughs> about some lost city where there's gold. You're going to have to convince me. All right. Um, apparently, Johannesburg has a lost city of its own, just like many other cities of the world. Archaeologists from the Wits University have found a way of locating the 15th century habitation through the use of laser technology. And this technology was used to find the remains of a lost Mayan city, which was hidden beneath a thick blanket of rainforest in Mesoamerica, which is, well, a civilization which was rich in tapestry of indigenous cultures and languages that developed in Mexico in this, uh, uh, cent- and Central America uh, prior to Spanish exploration and conquest in the 16th century. So this technology is called LIDA. Well, it's, it's a short version of um, light detection and ranging, which was used to locate the ruins of this ancient civilization which is about 60 kilometers south of Johannesburg. And this place is near the Saker Bosrand Hills. And the city is, up, is only about 200 years old and is said to be one of the several large settlements which were o- occupied by sizwana speaking people who had traveled mostly along the northern region of the country uh, be- before being en- encountered by European travelers in the 19th century. Okay, so the big question here is how exactly uh, does this does a city like this become extinct, if you can call it that? Well, most of the history was undocumented because you know with you know um, some of these stories most of them were relayed mostly orally and so the history just you know sort of vanished with time but uh, in the 19th in 19th century between 1820 and 1823 an era known as the Difahane and Mfekane which was highly characterized by violence and great strife uh, among the Nguni and Tswana uh, communities and the Pretoria region was initially occupied by the southern Ndebele people from around three to four hundred years ago. And um, the movement of the several um, Nguni groups across the Drakensberg was a result of escaping rule, uh, Zulu expansion and rule in KZN. However, this spread to the southern parts of Johannesburg led to a civil war which led to the, uh, which led to the, the extinction or the, co- the collapse of the city. Okay, that makes sense. It is still very fascinating because often when a war, so to say, collapses a city, somebody takes it over, the winner of the war. So that's, uh, but I guess because it's a civil war, this was different. But let's get back to the science of it, the technology. You did mention it's been used previously for some really great uh, other findings. But how exactly does it work? How did they use it? 
Well, the litter uses laser technology, so it's laser light. So it creates imagery of the landscape. It took aerial shots of the area with an X-ray view, like uh, scanning through thick, thick vegetation which had hidden the the city uh, previously. So it allowed the scientists to virtually travel beyond what is seen with the naked eye. And this scanning permitted them to fully access the ancient ruins of the buildings and the monuments that were once hidden from everyone and the archaeologists have given the city a scientific name called um, SKBR but they do hope to give it a proper Sitswana name once it has been unanimously uh, decided upon. Hmm. The other thing that surprises me is 200 years is actually not that long Mm -hmm. in the big scheme of things so I'm surprised that there's no living memory of this place Uh, you know that nobody knew that there was something there but how big of a city is it Evidence points out that SKPR is 10 kilometers in length and about 2 kilometers in breadth. It is actually larger than the Mesopotamian Mesopotamian city of Ur, which was less than 10 kilometers in diameter. So scientists say it is difficult to estimate the size of the of the population by just, you know, looking at, uh, you know, how big the place was. But upon making calculations uh, from the from about 700 to 850 homesteads that they found there, uh, they could make assumptions about, you know, um, you know, based on the lifestyle of, of the uh, Stwana people there, because each homestead uh, composed of uh, an extended family. So um, a male uh, a male head who had one or two wives and their children, obviously. So it 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 it, it could have been, you know, a, a probably a, a big a big a big enough population. That is quite significant. And is there anything else interesting about this find that we know so far? According to Professor Reville Mason, who is working on the study, he says extensive research has been done on stone-walled ruins around Johannesburg and the discoveries made at SKPR illustrate the prominence of wealth and status as many of the features display built channels or, uh, um, to, to funnel cattle along certain routes throughout the city. And this indi- indicates that the people who lived there uh, was, were, were people of a, cer- a certain status in, in society. Right. And one of the largest features found there were landmarks of, uh, at entrances of larger homesteads where mounds of refuse ash composed of a mixture of bones, ash, broken pottery and animal dung. And all of this indicates, uh, a, a, you know, a you know, prominence of, of, of wealth, of generosity and status. And um, this kind of display is synonymous to other countries such as India. Listen, if I leave a pile of bones, ash and animal dung in front of my door, nobody is going to think that it's a, a sign of wealth. But okay, I will, I will leave them. <laughs> now that we know this, what happens? Now that we know this... 
they are saying that it it will take maybe about 10 to 20 years to finish off the entire uh, findings at the site. But um, the professor has added that his students have made connections with the Bakwena tribe, who are a branch of the Zwana people. And um, these people have previously made claims to um, land in the southern parts of Johannesburg. And he says he and his team in, in Visage are actively involving these people to learn more because um, they're descendants live there and they built the city so they are the best people to carry out the story and give it its history mm, yeah give the cultural context yeah. but i guess the other question is uh, especially if this is a relatively wealthy society you don't know what you're going to find you could find piles of gold next True. to the pile of bones and um it's definitely in the context of land in South Africa, it's a good thing that they're involving communities from the start and not just seeing it as a scientific endeavor. Very true. And well, my article was, or the information was found from the conversation.com. Great. So from my side in the news, um, we, we turn more towards family planning and especially if you are a male listener, you may want to listen up because apparently low sperm count, the thing that every man is slightly afraid of, I think, does not only indicate a fertility problem, but generally health problems, which I'm, I'm sure you're all listening and thinking, oh no, please, Alna, don't say such things. But apparently low sperm count in itself is associated with a lot of other things, medically speaking, such as metabolic changes, cardiovascular risk, and low bone mass. This comes now according to endocrinologist Professor Alberto Ferlin at the University of Brascia in Italy, who together with other researchers did a study evaluating men's semen quality, but then looking at a lot of other things. I mean, you can assume that most studies into this have, of course, looked at reproduction because that's, of course, what you're looking at. But this study was carried out on just under, uh, just around 5,000 men who are part of an infertile couple. So you already knew there was a problem there somewhere. They found that about half of the men had low sperm counts, not too surprisingly, but they were almost twice more likely to have greater body fat, so that's bigger waistlines, higher body mass index, all of that, higher blood pressure, bad cholesterol, and lower good cholesterol compared to those with normal sperm counts. So if if a low sperm count is not enough bad news, how about that? Yeah. So are you telling me that this study is suggesting that I could just look at a men's cover and just say, hmm, I don't think this one is a good candidate? <laughs> I'm not I'm not suggesting it as a dating strategy or anything. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not saying that across across the board, but there does seem to be a link here and we have to take that seriously and we have to understand that uh, you know, looking at fertility, there there are all these other factors that that are a part of it. And yes, apparently according to the study you are more likely to have other important health problems and the two of course influence each other wow well i'm glad that we are actually discussing this issue because we do live in a very patriarchal um society and most times when you do get married it's 
usually the woman who's to blame for, you know, infertility problems, like, oh, she's not giving birth, she's barren, you know? So I like it that it's pointing the other direction this time. Hey, listen, there are two people involved in this situation. 50-50. We can't be <laughs> pointing fingers in one direction. Thank you. But... Uh, Yes, according to another study that was published in Oxford Academic last year, sperm counts among Western men have more than halved in the past 40 years and are currently falling every year. But don't be too worried. You don't don't have to worry that we're all going to go extinct now. But we do need to take this seriously because it's not just about people who um, who want to have families or want to have kids one day or very much in, in the near future. This does actually indicate that, once again, so much in your body is linked and you need to be aware. Thank you so much, Elna, for not making this an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> well, now the lis- the male listeners of the Science Inside, you know, we, we take care of you. We look at your health also. And uh, my story today came from Science Daily. Next up, we get into the more medicine actually but we get into the rest of the show by looking at Lassa fever and why the outbreak in Nigeria is so big this is the science inside with Elna Hello and welcome to The Science Inside with myself, Elna Schutz. Here we look at some of the big scientific issues you need to know about and not just if you're very interested in science, but really anybody, any person who considers himself a citizen of this country, of this continent and of this world should know about these kinds of things and understand the basic science behind them. Today and in this story, it's about Lassa fever. You might have heard that there is a particularly large outbreak of this virus in Nigeria at the moment, much larger than in previous years. So while this isn't a virus that occurs in our country, South Africa, naturally, it is good to understand and be informed because, of course, we are part of the African continent and there is a certain degree of us wanting to understand how it all works. Lassa is a viral hemorrhagic fever belonging to the family of arena viruses. And it's been around since about probably the 1950s and was first identified in 1969. I spoke to Professor Lucille Bloomberg about this. She is the Deputy Director of the NICD. That's the National Institute for Communicable Diseases um, and an institute that really does amazing things in this country. And she is also the head of the Public Health and Surveillance and Response Division there. So LASO is endemic, which means it occurs on an ongoing basis in uh, various countries in West Africa. And there is a season for LASO where more cases occur actually every year. And that's during the dry season, uh, probably from about October, November to about March, April. Rodents, specifically something called a multi-mammate rat, um, are lifelong reservoirs. They don't have symptoms, but they excrete the virus in their urine. It's really when rodents inhabit houses and grain storages around houses that um, you get people infected and people either eat the the rodents and the virus or inhale or touch um, the, the virus from from the rodent uh, excreta. 
So this high season in the disease is most probably because there's a lot of plowing during dry seasons of fields and this changes the behavior of the rodents and often moves them closer to where people live and then interact with them in some way. The other group of people, apart from people who live in these areas, is as I mentioned earlier, healthcare workers. They work in hospitals and they might interact with people who have Lhasa without them knowing that they do. But as with other diseases, it's not everyone that gets sick or is easily diagnosed. Many people will get infected. Several. We don't really know the extent of number of people infected during the season. I mean, obviously, it's, there's a year-round risk, but there's a is a higher season, um, and many people in fact will have no symptoms and will actually recover. A, a, a small proportion will, will have symptoms, uh, and they're very non-specific. So fever, quite often sore throat with swelling of the face and ulcers in the mouth, uh, can have diarrhea. So the problem is they're very non-specific, and most people without with these symptoms will have other common and commonly treated diseases. So malaria can is, is one of the um, important diseases that Lassa can get confused with and the other way around. And there are many other rodent-related diseases where a similar um, differential diagnosis needs to be considered. In terms of this diagnosis, there are blood tests and, of course, doctors are trained to identify possible cases. Unfortunately, there is not currently a rapid test that consolidates all these different aspects and can say, okay, you have Lhasa, it's available, you know, and this test is first of all doesn't exist and secondly isn't available at the point of care which is of course where it is most needed. There are only three laboratories in Nigeria that can find Lhasa on a molecular level but thankfully there is a lot of research underway to create better tests and generally understand this disease better. To date we don't have an effective vaccine. There's a lot of research and development around this field also around better treatment uh, uh, drugs for, for treating these patients. There's a group of diseases known as, which have been prioritized for research and development around countermeasures, vaccines, drugs, uh, near patient testing, diagnostics, um, so that one can respond to these epidemic-prone viral infections, and actually all of them are viruses, quicker, and uh, stop these big outbreaks. I think Ebola was a very important example where quite late in the outbreak, a vaccine that had not been uh, tested in humans to any, well, to any extent had to undergo a rapid trial and was found to be very effective post-exposure or post-potential exposure to those uh, who might have had contact with an Ebola patient. So I think that's the, the kind of aims of the research, to try and have these tools... Uh, at least at a level where if there was an outbreak or there was a need, they could be deployed and probably tested uh, much quicker. There are some treatments in place, including importive supportive care, like monitoring kidney function and having sufficient fluid intake happen, and dealing with other symptoms like organ dysfunction, which does unfortunately happen. There is an antiviral drug called ribavirin that Lassa seems to respond to if given early on, and it is being given out by the Nigerian government, but there still needs to be a lot more development around this. 
Thankfully, even though the virus has different strains, it doesn't seem to evolve as others do. You might be wondering, though, why this particular outbreak in Nigeria is so much higher than normal. Right now, the cases we've had just this year up to March is more than we had uh, in Nigeria all of last year. So it is quite alarming. And it was thought that this might be because the virus has mutated in some way. But real-time whole genome sequencing of the Lassa fever virus, which was just done, shown, showed that this wasn't the case. So another option, of course, is that the environment of the virus is changing. For instance, climate change may have increased rainfall and with it rodent populations. So those are just some of the possibilities. But Professor Bloomberg says this may not necessarily be a bad thing. So I think one important thing is that the surveillance is very much better and the diagnostics to support the, uh, the confirmation and suspected cases um, I think is, 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 is in practice a lot better. So I think some of the increases uh, that have been noted may well be due to better detection and better confirmation. You know, people have uh, hypothesized, have the rodents, has the rodent behavior changed? Has the vector, the reservoir, um, the number of reservoirs, different types of reservoirs expanded? Um, you know, there's always been a few outside of the multimammate rats, but has that expanded? It would not seem as though the virus has changed. So I think definitely there's been better detection and confirmation of cases. And that's a good thing. If you monitor the news and you're interested in these kind of diseases, you will notice that there are many of them, to put it mildly. We have been talking about listeriosis, there was Ebola, there's cholera, there was, there's obviously malaria and TB and HIV. And sometimes if you look at just one of them, it's easy to get scared. It's easy to think, this is terrible. We are all in danger right now. So I really wanted to make a point with Professor Bloomberg to focus on putting this disease in context, looking at it as a disease in a world where there are many diseases and obviously not take away anything from the fact that people are dying, but just understand the bigger scheme of things. This is what she had to say. I mean, it's a serious disease. The, the mortality rate in the community is quite low at 1% if you compare that to Ebola. Once you have hospitalized patients, it rises to about 10 to 20%. They obviously have much higher viral loads and you, you're getting the, 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 the spectrum where they're much iller. It's a disease that needs attention. You know, I think this certain developments around the countermeasures is very important. But if you compare it to you know, diseases like malaria, HIV, TB, diarrheal, respiratory diseases, you know, it, it's much, much less. But these explosive outbreaks do kind of capture headlines. They are alarming when they're occurring in your area. But I think we do need some perspective to them. But they do need attention. I think that, that's absolutely key. Yeah, so, you know, I think if you put this, uh, put Lassa in perspective, yes, malaria, respiratory, gastrointestinal diseases, TDHIV, uh, problems are much, much larger. But these, these outbreaks do have an impact. They are serious. I think in people living in these villages, they, they really, um, uh, they're concerning. They do have an impact on people's lives. Um, 
And for countries, there is an impact on trade, tourism. Um, these Many countries have really um, limited public health um, structures, and, and responding to these outbreaks takes huge resources and takes away from the other important diseases that we are dealing with all the time. So I don't think we must underestimate the impact, um, but I think we need some perspective. And perspective is exactly what I think this story has put to this idea of Lhasa. There is a very serious outbreak happening in Nigeria at the moment. We have to be aware of it as citizens of Africa. But at the same time, it is in context. The Nigerian government is doing what they can. There are a lot of research projects around this, which I think is very important to understand that as much as we are trying to cure diseases, we are also in these outbreaks, not just trying to deal with the outbreak itself, but understand the disease better through it. So conduct trials, whatever might be possible. I hope you understand a little bit better now about this virus. Lassa fever, I know that I do. But after the break, we're going to continue with the science inside with our feature and science. You're listening to the science inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to the show. I think one of the big misconceptions around science still to this day is that it's not necessarily about me. It's somebody sitting in a lab. Does it really affect my life? But of course it does. And yes, it can be fun. It can be ridiculous and it can be silly. And that's exactly what we do on this next feature or these next few minutes. It's called un science and it's really where science gets a little bit weird strange and hilarious today's information comes from live science and music by audio nautics let's get into it unusual unlikely unscience As always, I'm here with producer Bridget LePere to tell her about something new in science that is ridiculous. Are you ready, Bridget? Ready as always. <laughs> so today, I have to ask you, have you ever found yourself logging in on any of your social media accounts? Maybe you're an Instagram girl, maybe you love your Twitter or your Facebook or even just, you know, WhatsApp to send a message to somebody. And then next thing you know... Three hours later, there you are, still on the internet looking at things. Yeah, it's actually very funny. I would log on to Twitter to tweet about, you know, something on the science inside. And then I would end up just scrolling through some random, you know, uh, feeds on Twitter for hours and hours on end. Just yesterday, I switched on my PC to write my news story. And you can take a wild guess what happened there after after news feed just popped out of nowhere on my screen. <laughs> I really think somebody should create an app that like allows you to not go on Facebook for a certain amount of time that just blocks it and then every hour it'll like open it up or something like that. That would be so helpful. But there is a serious side to this because you may be showing signs of social media addiction. What? Me? Addiction? Let's just say news and interesting things have a funny way of grabbing my attention, but addiction, that's a bit extre extreme yeah. <laughs> for my liking. Well, 
it really is a thing. So many people think that they might only be occasionally on Facebook, think I'm not addicted to social media, but then really think about how much time you spend there, how many times you click on that. And if you counted, you'd be surprised the amount of time in your day. And it can eat up hours and hours. But research is finding that it's not just the cuteness of cat memes that might be the thing that's to blame here. It could be your personality, Bridget. Really? But I I, I can't, you know, I don't find a correlation between the two. What does my personality have anything to do with social media uh, addiction? Well, I'm glad you asked because according to this new study, people with certain personality traits are in fact more likely to develop a social media addiction. So it's not the same for all of us. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it does sound, you know, ludicrous. Uh, but it sounds like it's just a lame excuse to blame social media or addiction on it. On it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the end, you are still, of course, in control of what you look at or don't look at and how much time. But... According to Isaac Vachevi, an assistant professor of information systems at Binghamton University in New York State, there has been quite a lot of research into seeing how certain personality traits affect other addictions. So alcohol, drugs, and they've seen, yes, there might actually be correlations there, but very little to do with this more modern but very real addiction of tech or social media. And it turns out it can also be influenced by your personality traits. All right. So how exactly did they do the study and what were the outcomes? So it's a relatively small study. We do have to keep that in mind. It was about 300 university students at that university. And they looked at the level of their so-called addiction or rather just how much use they have on social media platforms. And then they asked various questions um, around their social media addiction and tested them personality wise so some of the questions they asked was for instance do you neglect important things because of social media and how many attempts have you made to reduce the time you spend on social media platforms and i'm sure you can answer that for yourself but i've definitely you know stopped doing something relatively important to you know go off and and maybe not necessarily check facebook but you know answer to answer message or something like that hmm. i find that very interesting i think some of us have occasionally made failed attempts at reducing the amount of time spent on on social media platforms uh, with me it's whatsapp it's a bit problematic even though it would not count as much as of a social media platform as you know your Twitter um, because I have tried previously everything with WhatsApp to avoid this vicious trap of being caught up in conversations I hadn't initially planned to be part of and I've muted people I've muted people I've blocked them I've left groups only to be dragged back into these black holes and even going to the extent of deactivating the application only to reactivate it again because everybody keeps on nagging me to come back that's that's the thing it is in itself i think quite an addictive thing it is in itself something that asks a lot of your attention it's built to make you come back and back but 
this study is showing that it, that might not be the only thing that leans makes you lean towards this. And there are three personality traits in particular. Maybe you should ask yourself, do I have these? And the first one is neuroticism. So that's a tend- tendency to experience negative or moody moody emotions like stress and anxiety. And this one makes sense to me. If you are highly neurotic, I can see how you might want to use social media as an escape. You know, just get away from your moodiness. And Therese Barber, it was found that people with high levels of neuroticism were most likely to develop social media addiction. And then the second one was conscientiousness, which you might know is about being careful or vigilant. And it implies a strong desire to do a task well and take responsibility seriously. So high levels of this particular personality trait meant that people had uh, a lot of impulse control and a strong drive to achieve specific goals and therefore were much less likely to develop social media addiction. So all of this makes a lot of sense to me. But then there was a third uh, a third trait and that was agreeableness or the degree to which someone is friendly empathetic and helpful so this trait actually had no effect on social media addiction on its own but when it was studied in com- combination with conscientiousness it proved to be otherwise so when you have quite low scores on both agreeableness and conscientiousness, you're likely to be social media addicted, which again makes sense to me. But here's the interesting thing. If you have very high scores on both of these, the same applies. And this is because this group of people in particular want to make a very conscious decision to be friendly and to be agreeable and um, all of that. And that is why they use social media to help their friendships flourish. And maybe the way you do that is show everybody your lunch on Instagram. Wow. <laughs> this, well, this does make a lot of sense when you put it that way, Elna. Because in a world that we live in, we are often bombarded with an assortment of things on social media. And there's no telling how one may react or how it can affect them. And yet... There are differences. You have friends who never look at their phones and then some, they can barely, you know, you can barely unglue their hands from it. So this study does make a lot of sense to me because you see differences in people even though they're exposed to the same kinds of social media platforms. So I think this is a very interesting question to ask yourself. These three traits, neuroticism, agreeableness, and conscientiousness, how do I score on these traits? Maybe you can even do a test with someone or online. And if you're struggling with social media addiction or perhaps the opposite, you never want to be on social media, maybe that is the actual, uh, one of the reasons that is part of it. This is Unscience, or that was our Unscience, rather. Keep listening because next up we look at the scientists that are behind great science. And we want to know how they tick. Next up we chat to Dr. Bianca for Linden. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. 
Hello and welcome in this last little bit of the show. What we do every single week now is that we look at the scientist behind the science and just really get a little bit into their head and understand why they've chosen to do what they do and just yeah get get a little bit closer to the great scientists we have in this country and today we're talking to Dr. Bianca Felinden. She is a young malaria researcher at the University of Pretoria, specifically the Institute for Sustainable Malaria Control and she's passionate about curing malaria and her PhD research resulted in the discovery of a new anti-malarial compound or several of them rather that resist resistance and her research papers have been cited several times she's presented at conferences internationally in 2016 she was chosen by the National Research Foundation of South Africa as one of two excellent young researchers to represent South Africa at the 8th HOPE meeting with Nobel laureates in Japan those are just some of the wonderful things she's done, and she's here today to speak to us. Welcome, Dr. Bianca Felinden. Good evening, Alma. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to chat to you, and I really would love to know why you decided to focus on this very important area of research, specifically discovery of anti-malarial compounds. Ha. Well, if, if I had a sort of summed up, I can actually thank my older brother, Jeff. Um, he did his postgraduate studies in malaria research and on the weekends, he would drag me up to the lab and I'll, I'll never forget the first time I looked through the microscope and I saw the parasites that cause malaria. I was captured. I couldn't believe that something so small and beautiful, beautiful could cause death and devastation. And the, the reason I stayed and focused specifically on anti-malarials is because malaria really is a disease that targets the vulnerable. It targets it's, it particularly kills um, pregnant women, young toddlers, the elderly, immune-compromised individuals. If we take last year's deaths, for example, 285,000 children under the age of five died of malaria last year. You know, and this is a preventable disease. It is curable if you diagnose it in time. And that is why I'm super fired up and I'm excited and I'm on purpose in the lab because I know what I'm fighting for. So that's pretty much my focus and why I'm, why I'm excited about it. <laughs> It's so great to hear that you really got the passion from somebody else. I think that's one of the best ways to learn a passion uh, for any kind of science. But Indeed. thankfully, you show something that is so very important in our current landscape in South Africa, especially medically. But even though you know all about it, I'm sure a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. are sitting there thinking, anti-malarial compounds. Elna, what is oh. that? Okay, very fair question. So, antimalarial compounds, you generally get two types. The first type is used to prevent malaria, and this is what we usually call a prophylaxis. And the second type is the, oh, this is the one you don't want. This is the one to treat malaria. So, this is you've gotten the infection, and you're now trying to, you know, cure the, cure the disease. And people often ask me, okay, so what prophylaxis should we take? And so the advice I give is always to go to your nearest travel clinic or your GP because they have the newest information about the strains that are circulating in certain endemic regions and they can give you the correct antimalarial for that region at the correct dose and it's just our job to make sure that we finish the course. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in the research paper that you were involved in, it was saying that 
the discovery of these anti-malarial drugs requires strategies to decrease the time of delivering these new drugs while simultaneously increasing the drug's lifespan, which makes a, a, a lot of sense. Get it there quick and yeah. let it live as long as it can. Have you figured out the key to doing this? Well, I think we've discovered one of the keys. And our, our research specifically looks at strategies to target the parasite that causes malaria. So often um, drugs have been favored if they have a single target. So they have a single target in the parasite and they, they inhibit that and then the parasite dies. And we prefer single targets because they're predictable. And the, the problem that we've learned from that is a predictable drug to us becomes predictable to the parasite, and then it easily develops resistance. So what my research focuses on is to look at a multi-target approach. So this is a single drug that has multiple targets instead of one. And if I may, I explain it to my friends this way. So imagine we're in a room with a lion, okay, and our job is to tame the lion. And in the room we have like a long stick and we've got a four-legged stool, okay, that we can sit on. So if you think of a, like a drug that has a single target, think of the stick, it's a long stick. If you poke that lion enough times in the same place trying to keep it away from you, the lion will focus and it'll bite the stick and will leave you defenseless, okay? And if we look at the old school way in which they used to tame lions, um, this is like Clyde Beatty, they would take a four-legged stool and they would walk up to the lion and they would flick it in front of the lion's face. And what invariably happens is that the lion tries to focus on all four of those, those legs at the same time. And it can't do that. And it becomes overwhelmed. And you can actually tame a lion, lion and paralyze it that way. So we're using that concept, but with the malaria parasite. We try and overwhelm it with one drug that hits it in four places, you know, places at once. And in that way, we sort of overwhelm its adaptive capability. And we've seen really good results. Um, it's active against the parasite form in the human host that causes the, the disease, as well as the ones that the mosquito takes up. So this is the one that spreads the disease. So it kills both those forms. And we've shown multiple targets that it, that it does um, inhibit, and it does show um, reduced resistance development. So that's really exciting, and now we're just in the, the process of developing that. Mm. And, and once it's out there in the world as something that can be accessed, how will it change the face, or will it impact the face of, um, of malaria? I'm guessing that's what I, you're hoping for. I'm, I'm definitely hoping for. So, for instance, the compounds that I studied, I think they would still, they now move to the next phase, which is to look at the, what they call the pharmacokinetic properties, is it metabolically stale? Can we make a drug out of it? Is it druggable? So it has to go through all those like, little chemical changes to make sure that it's, it's a solid drug. And then it has to go through the process of going to clinical trials to make sure that it's safe. But I do think if more drug candidates like this come up, because... The problem is every antimalarial that's out there, we currently have seen resistance to it. There's really five regions in Southeast Asia that is resistant to our first-line treatment. So I do think if we can invest in candidates that can resist resistance, we're going to keep them for so much longer. Like, we, like you said in the beginning, we're going to have a, a longer lifespan. So instead of maybe retiring them after, let's say, five to ten years, we could keep it for 20 to 50 years if we use it in the correct combination. And I think that, that could definitely change the face of and the usability of antimalarials in the future. That's incredible and such important work, but yeah. even important work that needs to be done isn't always easy. What are some of the challenges? Uh, <laughs> um, with these particular resistance studies, um, the one thing I've, I've instilled and taught myself now, it just, it's a lot of perseverance. Um, the experiments take several months, and they require you to show up to the lab and to change that media and to add the new drug every day, 
and you, you learn patience because sometimes you'll look through the microscope and you won't see anything. You'll just see the red blood cells and you're looking for the parasites and you don't see them. And the thing is, you have to keep on going because they might just pop up again. You know, So it's just that, that perseverance, I would say, and that patience just to, to stick to your guns and just to do the experiment from start to finish. Hmm. Bianca, we ask most of our guests this. You have explained it so well, but what is the one thing you wish ordinary listeners, ordinary people out there that maybe aren't experts in malaria, Ah. what do you wish they knew about your work? Thank you so much for this question. And I really think it's an important one because for for this kind of work, it could save a life. So, Often people will come to me and they say they've heard it's actually better not to take malaria prevention tablets and only to take tablets, you know, once they feel sick, then they should seek medical help. And in certain cases, there, are, there is the odd instance that if you take a malaria prevention tablet, that it might not be 100% effective. There might be a new strain that moves into the region that that antimalarial cannot kill yet, okay? But what we must remember is that these antimalarial drugs that prevent Although you, you may get the infection, it will save your life, okay? Because the continent we live on, we have cerebral malaria, which is the dangerous one. So re- cerebral malaria is the one that goes to your brain and that kills you. And it's 99% of the malaria we see in Africa. In Southeast Asia, it's the predominant one in the world. And th- the thing there is um, if you, you've got a very short window for treatment. So if you wait till you start feeling sick, you have around 24 to 48 hours to get treatment to actually prevent that parasite from going to your brain and your vital organs. So I just want to encourage everyone out there that take malaria prevention tablets for regions, especially if you're going into a a malaria cerebral region, and then they will keep your parasite numbers low. So you'll feel icky, but you're not going to have a full-blown infection because if if you have a full-blown infection of about 2% parasitema, you have a trillion parasites circulating in your body. You know, and to throw a drug in then is you're, you're playing with your life. So I would encourage you take those malaria prevention tablets, keep the parasite numbers low, and do your best to keep yourself safe and malaria free. That's really good advice and always important when you're traveling to to think about Absolutely. that or if you, if, if you live in that kind of area. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bianca from oh, Linden. It's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Elmer. Thank you so much once again. We did talk to Dr. Bianca Philinden just to hear a bit about her work around antimalarial compounds. And we are not done yet with the science inside. Tonight, after the break, we get into March Mammal Madness. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome back to the last few min- minutes of the show. I am joined here by somebody who is not a scientist, but is trying to become really an expert in mammals, I think. I feel like I'm a social scientist. <laughs> are, we, are we not the same? You're allowed in the room. Okay, thank you. Okay. This is Anthony Teixeira. He is actually on the Sports Hub team, which is the show on Valve M after the science and yes. science. But the team tends to walk over the line in March. Yeah, we Come do. to our side. Yeah, well, we, technically, you guys join us, you know? That's true. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. And what we do is we play this ridiculous game called March Mammal Madness. Yes. And then you explain it to us. What is it? So basically, it's four brackets of uh, mammals that go up against each other and fight to the death. And we have a final four and then an eventual winner. 
And uh, this year is quite interesting, I must say. Uh, my favorite category, without a doubt, is the uh, prehistoric category. Uh, I cannot pronounce half of the names that are on there. <laughs> but thankfully, they're all dead, so they can't yes. be they can't be insulted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's honestly, it's one of the funnest games I've ever played, um, and it's it. I'm actually disappointed because I see that. Two of our final fours are exactly the same. Ooh. Okay, so my final four is the cheetah. Yes. Maybe my South African heart just came through there. Mine as well. I saw I saw Big Cat and I was like... It has to be that. Yeah, it has to be that. Then I... Oh, I'm actually very South African now that I think about it because I have the hyena also. So do I. <laughs> maybe just because I'm really scared of them or maybe I've watched... Lion King too many times Look I think It has to do with Lion King It also has to do with Documentaries where you see These uh, female hyenas That just rip things apart So between The hyena and the cheetah though I haven't made a decision I can't bring myself I think that the cheetah Defensively is going to struggle Um I just I think that it's a weak cat. You look at like a Ooh. leopard and you look at the lion You're like Yo that can take a hyena But I don't necessarily think A cheetah could but it can run, though. It so. can run, but it eventually tires. Whereas <laughs> hyenas, jaw, they don't stop. <laughs> See, the reason why I ended up going with the cheetah is because it is um, an animal of, of prey. While, as far as I know, hyenas rather come once the yeah. animal is dead, like a vulture. Yeah, a scavenger. Yes, a scavenger. So, if a scavenger comes at me and I... Um, a predator that kills I don't know I'm Maybe I'm just going to pick the cheetah So I can just balance out In case the cheetah does win We get the same amount of points <laughs> like, Oh that is not how you can do I this I think that's the end game Not the way this works <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to win Not just be slightly better than me Yeah I feel like I'm going to win On the other picks That's why <laughs> <laughs> So one of my other picks prob- Probably just because First of all, I think they're just great. Komodo dragon. Yeah, it made all the way to the semifinals for me. Um, I'm not going to lie. I think if you look at the Komodo dragon, it's a beast. But is it really a mammal? No, so... That's this, exactly it. This is a special thing about um, about this year's March Mammal Madness. There is a whole category of animals that aren't mammals. Which is really going against everything. I only just noticed that. Really? Did you not I've know that? I only just noticed that. Anthony. Oh my. I'm feeling a lot more confident about my choices now if you've only just noticed this three seconds ago. So this category, all the categories have names, and this category is called When the Cat's Away. Obviously the oh mice come no. out to play. But the cat is spelled with a K because this um this competition, March Mammal Madness, for the year, all the years that it's been run, one of the main scientists that created is a scientist called Professor Katie Hinder. Yes. And this year, Professor Katie Hinder is, I think, on a sabbatical or some kind of work thing in Australia, <laughs> if I remember correctly. So they've called this category "When the Cat's Away." I'm loving it. And put in all mammals. Yes. So I mean, all non-mammals. So there are some really, really weird things here. Um, There's a crocodile, and that was my pick. Yeah, yeah. I had the croc went quite far for me. Also, they, I quite liked the. Uh, Alligator snapping turtle just because it looked mean. It was like <laughs> also the, the name. Yeah, it's like the the resting 
bee face of animals because <laughs> it just looks mean all the time. <laughs> so I don't care that you're small. I would run away from you. I mean, yeah, definitely. Um, I I did actually go with one of the antecessors, so that's the sort of prehistoric. With your event for your eventual winner. Yes. So I'm hoping that even though it's distinct, uh, it's extinct. It will. I mean, that could be win. the thing that they throw in the semi-finals and say, "Well, it's dead, so we can't judge." Although the short-faced bear that won last year was also extinct. But they changed the rules up. Let's not lie. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Apparently, you never know with evolutionary biologists. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think this game has really made me think that they're quite fun i could i could go out for a drink oh with i could go for lots of drinks with them <laughs> <laughs> okay this is march mammal madness and that brings us to the end of the science inside tonight if you'd like to play along and you think that we are going a little bit crazy but you are the same kind of weird as we are find march mammal madness online fill out your bracket and you can play with us send it to us with hashtag science inside it's been a great show thank you to all of our guests featured on the show including dr bianca for and professor lucille bloomberg our team behind the scenes is production by bridget Lepere, harmony malefi lebohang madisha and gloria mabuza mabuza so sorry and tech by kutlano sahame the podcast is on vits.journalism.coza um, and just find the science inside that address has changed so please be careful about that but you can google the science inside social media the science inside on facebook at VAVM on twitter i'm sure you know all those details by now my name is elna schitz and the science inside is produced by the fitz radio academy funded in part by the south african department of science and technology i will be with you again next week where we have more ridiculous science the Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1. Listen to the Science Inside podcast on www.journalism.co.za.